1: The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, Jim. Nice to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. We've got a three or four item agenda today, which probably means we'll speak about one or two things. Top of my list, actually, is that really riveting, exciting, dynamic topic of pensions. And equally interesting, at least to some of our listeners, intergenerational equality if not intergenerational conflict and there's tons of stuff to talk about that and a very specific suggestion about how Ireland's finance minister Mr McGrath might actually help the younger generation in budget 2024. So in part I think that that will be the second item on our agenda today which is uh, another discussion out of several we'll be having about budget 2024. I see that we've had a specific hint dropped from all sorts of different people about a potential cut in the much hated universal social charge. And a question for you, Jim, because I was looking at some of the comments that Minister McGraw has been making about corporation tax and the budget generally. And I was wondering if he'd actually been listening to the other hand, or whether we're just making statements of the blindingly obvious, because he's been repeating almost word for word, some, some of the things that we've been saying in recent pods. Item three on my agenda. Now, this is going to blindside you, Jim, because you've never heard of this before. It's called dynamic beer pricing. Ever come across that? I'm sure I did, but I'm not aware of it. I don't think so. I hope you haven't yet, because there's a suggestion from a big pub company, brewing company. They own the franchise, for example. You may have come across it in London when you visited the Slug and Lettuce. Oh, yeah. Dynamic beer pricing, I mean, this will be something familiar to you you as an economist, is that you charge more for something when there's more demand for it. Is that precisely what they're going to do? So I wanted to ask you in a moment what you think about this proposal. And I know that you wanted to talk about some of the stuff that, uh, because I hogged all of the the time last week, and we didn't get a chance to talk about incredibly weak euro area economic data on a whole host of counts last week and indeed running into this week. And of course, that is very important running into the next meeting of the ECB and what they're going to be doing about interest rates. So given that I didn't give you enough time to talk about all that last week, why don't we start there, Jim? And you just give us a quick run through of the recent economic data from the euro area. And what you think that actually means for ECB interest rates and therefore Irish mortgage rates going forward? Yeah, on Thursday this week the European
0: Central Bank has its policy making meeting. Uh the market is really divided at the moment as to whether another increase will be delivered or not. Um at the Jackson Hole summit there in August, Christine Lagarde really didn't come out in too definitive a way, basically saying inflation is still too high but that the European Central Bank is now in data-watching mode. So she didn't really clarify as to whether an increase was going to be delivered or not. So I have no idea whether we will see one or not. But I have an idea of what I would like to see, which is no change. I think an interest rate increase at this juncture would be inappropriate, would be dangerous, would be a policy mistake, would be overkill. This week, uh, we got the latest Eurozone, EU economic forecast from the European Commission. And Eurozone growth is now projected at 0.8% this year, um, down from a previous forecast of 1.1. And for next year, a growth rate of 1.3% projected, down from 1.6%. And the commentary underlying that forecast has basically said that growth has effectively stalled. And of course, that is obvious from the GDP data. Uh, but that further weakening will be likely over the coming months. And I think that call is on the back of the confidence surveys like the purchasing managers indices and so on. It went on to say, the commission went on to say that there's significant uncertainty at the moment about the outlook. And um, they're concerned about the impact that the extreme weather across Europe will have on the growth performance. So that's a pretty downbeat assessment from the European Commission. And it comes on the back of a significant raft of pretty weak data. Last week, we got a very weak German industry production number fell for the third straight month in a a row. The German Purchasing Managers Index for manufacturing is at 39.1, services is at 47.3, For the eurozone, the manufacturing index is at 43.5 and the services index is at 47.9. And just to repeat once again, as we do frequently, these purchasing managers indices uh, is based on an interpretation that if the reading is above 50, there are more firms expanding than contracting. And if the reading is below 50, it means more firms are contracting than expanding. So what we're seeing in manufacturing across the Eurozone, particularly Germany, is extreme weakness and is certainly consistent with recession. Uh, but the services sector, which has been stubbornly strong for some time now, is now a negative territory. So it's clear that the economic backdrop in the Euro area continues to deteriorate. And against that sort of backdrop, it strikes me as being blindingly obvious that the European Central Bank should do nothing this week. But just because I believe it's blindly obvious
1: doesn't mean that Christine Lagarde will Yeah, time will time will tell in a in a very short space of time, Jim. And um I've been deeply sceptical, if not somewhat cynical, about the ECB's ability to make a mistake for ages now. I think I'm on record as saying that I think they will make a mistake. That's partly based on their own history, because I think they've made serial errors throughout the existence of the euro. And I don't think enough has been done to hold these people to account for what they've done to, to countries not like, unlike Ireland, actually, but also in particular Greece during the crisis. I think they had a very bad financial crisis and, of course, causing things like double-dip recessions by raising interest rates in the past when they shouldn't have. So I don't think that they have done a fantastic job. Um, but, you know, I'm just an armchair central banker. I've never done it in anger. So um, what, what do I know? What I do know is that there is a much more active debate in the United States about whether or not the Fed should go again. And it seems to me that it's a much more grown-up debate than in Europe, in that the Fed um, are clearly agonizing over the contradictory signals that the economy is sending out. Inflation looks to be coming down in a two-step forward, one-step backward sort of way, coming down more rapidly than in many other jurisdictions, it, it has to be said. They do anticipate that, for example, just as it has happened in Europe, um, higher oil prices, energy prices generally through the month of August is going to cause a blip to headline inflation. How do they interpret that? Is it a debate? Is it headline? Is it core? Those sorts of things. And it just strikes me that the debate in the United States is much more grown up and honest in a way, which says, look, it's very, very balanced. It's very nuanced. We might take a pause for the next meeting we might not raise interest rates then but it's perfectly possible depending on the data that we might go again later in the year and that basically is, is what the markets have been agreeing with and everybody is 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 behaving like consenting adults in this debate it strikes me that the debate in europe is positively juvenile in, in comparison which is that it, you have to be chest thumping the marcher about your determination to get rates down whatever the economic cost yada yada and i'm not sure how much credibility these people have when it comes to comparing them to grown-up central banks like like the Federal Reserve, maybe it is about just how long you've been in existence and how much institutional memory and experience you've got of central banking. But I do think it, the policy debate uh, is better in the, the monetary policy debate is better in the United States than it than it is in Europe, and that the ECB therefore is more vulnerable to making making mistakes. Right, Jim. Let's get on to something else. Uh, equally riveting. I mentioned at the top of the show that we I was going to talk a little bit about pensions. Now, the reason why this is interesting, and I, please bear with me because I know even at our ripe old age, pensions are are very dull subjects, is that it, this will end with a brilliant idea for budget twenty twenty four. Okay, so it starts in the UK, but which has but this has general applicability about the daft way, the insane way they do state pension increases once a year. Um, going back a few years, they implemented a rule called the triple lock. Bear with me. It means that pensions, state pensions in the UK, will go up either by the rate of price consumer price inflation or the rate of wage increases or two and a half percent, whichever is the greater. Now, this all sounds very innocuous. It sounds mildly fair and mildly reasonable if you think about it for no longer than a second and a half. But if you think about it for two and a half seconds, it's insane. It will, by a matter of arithmetic, bankrupt the country over the next few decades if they continue with this triple lock, which means that they won't. So all of our UK listeners banking on a triple lock, lock, continuing forever, forget about it. best way I can describe this is deposit, in a way, kind of, sort of, what's happened over the course of the last couple of years. What what has happened is that inflation last year led to a pension increase going up by 10%, because that's what consumer price inflation had done in the UK in the previous 12 months. Lo and behold, this year, wages, as they often do, have reacted to that past inflation and have gone up, as we have learnt today. Total earnings, which includes all sorts of funnies like bonuses and public sector one-off payments, another daft way of measuring it for the purpose of pensions, gone up by about 8.5%. So pensions, this which is greater than the rate of inflation, which is marvellous for workers because um, if you're getting that 8.5%, you're now getting money, wage increases more than the rate of inflation, first time in a few years, not catching up, but at least you're getting your nose ahead of the most recent data, which is great. But it means that pensions next year, next April in the UK will go up by about 8.5%. Over the course of two years, that means that they've gone up by about 20%. Nobody's earnings, nobody's wages in the UK, in aggregate at least, have gone up by that much. So pensioners making out like bandits. So let's put an extreme example of what I'm talking about here. If inflation in year one was to be 20%, and then in year two, because what the Bank of England does with interest rates, it goes back to zero, but wages catch up in the following year, year two, by 20%, wages and inflation have gone up by 20%, But in year three, UK pensions will have gone up by 40%. That's why the system will end up being bankrupt, because the gap will just grow bigger and bigger between pensions and the three things that it's supposed to track. So uh, that's a particular example of intergenerational inequality. That's a particular example of the way the old, as we have spoken about many times on this pod, pulling up the ladder behind them and it's going to have to stop because it's trickled into all sorts of different areas not least housing I know in Ireland that young people complain bitterly about not being able to get onto the housing ladder either via purchase or by renting it's exactly the same in the UK no different at all the complaints are the same they're just as loud so I was reading um, a fascinating article by an ex- believe it or not, Tory party leader William Hague today, in which he was talking about a suggestion that he made a few years ago that he is slightly tongue in cheek resurrecting today that I think would be a brilliant suggestion for Minister McGrath, Jim. Are you ready for it? I cannot wait, Chris. Cut taxes for the under 30s. Now, if you think about this, do something like abolish USC if you're under 30 or cut it in half or do something uh, that the arithmetic allows you to do. This feels like a gift to younger people, which is exactly what it is. It's a gift to younger people from older people, which is exactly what it is. An economist or an actuary or an accountant, a tax person would say, if you're trying via the tax system to give money to younger people because they don't earn very much relative to older people, Um, which is what we're trying to do here, Um, you say, yeah, absolutely. Um, And they will say, well, the tax system does that anyway, because if you don't earn very much, however old you are, you don't pay much tax. So the tax system is already doing what you're suggesting it should do. I'm saying it should do even more. But I'm saying in a funny kind of way, in a quasi- Um, shadow sort of way this is like a wealth tax because one of the things that older people have on average not always relative to younger people is accumulated wealth and what people often say is that we that's what we should tax in order to give younger people a better start in life via the tax and welfare system but the problem with wealth taxes is that they're phenomenally complicated to devise, implement, execute, and collect efficiently. And your bang for your buck there is always very, very low. They're very impractical taxes in many shapes or form. If you imagine this tax cut for younger people as a quasi-wealth tax on older people via the fact that over time, this will mean that taxes on older people will be higher than they otherwise would be. And the reason why you're doing it is because, in part, they have more wealth than younger people. And you're just trying to reduce this intergenerational conflict thing that you've that you've started so i think it's worth consideration jim do you think it's for the birds jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? No, I don't actually Chris um I think it's a great idea. Uh we we have spoken in the past about this inter- intergenerational wealth problem and the way in which the ladder has been pulled up by our generation from the next generation and if you, if you think about uh the environment the younger generation is operating in at the moment um many are do not have pensions at all. Many have defined contribution pensions if they have them. The, the day of the defined benefit pension scheme is virtually gone. And there's many people of my generation, um, unfortunately not myself, but there's many out there who are now enjoying a long retirement with a defined benefit pension contribution or payment. OK, whereas young people will not have that. Uh, the second issue is the cost and availability of housing. Um, rents are exorbitantly high, and um, the average rent in Dublin is now over two thousand one hundred a month. Can you imagine the level of income required to actually service that sort of rent? You're talking about gross income of around fifty grand, which is absolutely nuts. Um, so that that's creating a huge problem, and the ability to get on the housing ladder, uh, particularly here in Dublin. Um, is non-existent because prices are exorbitantly high and uh, the type of mortgage required is just out of reach of many. So there is definitely a sense that this generation is having a rough time at the moment. And indeed, they are voting with their feet. You wouldn't believe the the number of young people in their 20s. I know Uh, they'd be peers of my two sons who are actually going off to Australia at the moment, uh, mainly Australia, a few in Berlin, a few in London, but it's Australia mainly. And um, I know Australia isn't perfect. We've spoken about the housing issues there and the rental issues and so on, but at least out there they will get a good climate and a decent quality of life and a bit of an outdoor life and so on. But we're, we're seeing this brain drain of young people. So I think it is totally appropriate that we try and do something about this. Because at the end of the day, we are spending a lot of money educating these young people, which is great, but we're we're educating a lot of them to just leave the country. Some may come back, a lot may not come back, um, it remains to be seen. But there is a loss of brain power to the economy. So I think whatever we can do to try and induce those people to stay in the country, Um, has got to represent good news. Uh, The obvious solution is you sort the housing problem. But as I've said in many different fora, there's a better chance of Warford winning all Ireland than the housing problem being sorted because it just is not getting the sort of urgency that it requires. Um, It is not regarded, unfortunately, by the political elites here as a crisis situation. Um, So a second option would be uh, those tax proposals you are making you know, so for example, introduce a 20% tax rate max for all earnings for people under the age of, I would say, 35 rather than 30, to be honest. Um, that would give an incentive for those younger people to stay in the country, would give them some chance. And, and it would represent, um, I think, a redress of the intergenerational wealth transfer that you spoke about. So I, I think it's a very sensible idea. It is left the field. There is no doubt about that. Um I would say there is zero chance that any politician in this country would, would run with that sort of notion. So I think the conversation we're having is um, is meaningless. But um if, if, as you suggested, perhaps Michael McGrath has been listening to our podcast, so he might be listening to this. He might get some ideas from it. But I, I just think That sort of financial incentive for young people would be a fantastic idea. And I I also think from a political perspective, it might help alleviate some of that sense of um,
1: anger that a lot of young people have at the moment, which is being reflected in the opinion polls. I think that's an incredibly important point, because one of the things that I think we both agreed on in our last pod is just how intensely political the next budget is going to be relative to past budgets, certainly ahead of the next general election. And giving money to young people who are, uh, as uh, the opinion polls currently suggest, much more likely to vote for Sinn Féin than they are for the current coalition members, particularly Fianna Fáil. All of their electoral base is shown to be older, a bit like the Conservative Party here in the UK. Um, So I, I think that ticks the political box. But if I might argue against myself or argue against the suggestion, play devil's advocate for a second... What if it just simply get, puts money into the pockets of home buyers and renters, younger people, and it just drives up prices and rents again? Is that is that a a, a riposte that we would expect to hear?
0: Yeah, of, of course it is, Chris. And you know, a- anything that puts more money into the pockets of potential house buyers will just bid prices up. Uh, but no policy can be um, implemented in isolation, and. Obviously, if this sort of policy is were to be introduced, it would have to be accompanied also by ongoing efforts to try and address the housing problem. And um, uh, I I just think it is so obvious what needs to be done on the housing front. we, We just need to ramp up supply at all costs, do whatever it takes to improve housing supply. So I think combination of increased housing supply plus this sort of tax incentive for younger people, I think would be incredibly powerful. But I can assure you that is not what's going to happen. What's going to happen in the budget is that, once again, um, pensions will be increased significantly. Um, so the the inequality, income inequality between older and younger people will just be exacerbated.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's going to be a growing problem. In uh, It already is a problem, um, but it is, is clearly getting worse in both jurisdictions on either side of the Irish Sea, as, as I mentioned earlier. But your point about no, don't look at one policy in isolation, I think is another excellent point, Jim, in that the the way in which you um, deal with the housing problem is to increase supply, as you've argued many, many times, and that's absolutely right. But that, of course, is not a switch that you can flick on immediately. And I think you're right to say that the coalition has been very slow to recognise the scale of the problem that it faces with respect to housing and it hasn't recognised that it's got a crisis on its hand, I'm not sure I agree with you fully that they still don't know this. I think they've had enough people yelling at them, people like us and every younger voter in the country yelling at them, every opinion pollster telling them that they need to be pretty thick and pretty unaware to realise that they've got a severe problem on their hands and there is some evidence that some of them get it. So on the assumption that they do get it, and that they are going to do something about it in the years ahead, assuming that they have their hands on the levers of power post-next-general ne- election. The way in which they help uh, retain um, their hands on the levers of power, in other words, win the next general election and maintain this coalition, this nationalist national government effectively, as, as I've heard it described several times recently, is to do nakedly political things in the budget. So I, I think you quite rightly say there's no chance it's going to happen, Jim. But um, I, I'd urge the thinkers out there to just sit back and, and just think about it. It, it. it does have economic rough edges to it, this proposal. But I think politically, um, and I say I say this not claiming to be the originator of the idea, but politically it's absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah. Uh, and Chris, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, the Department of Finance will react neg- negatively to any sort of suggestion about cutting taxes. Well, that's I mean, the same
1: as the Treasury here. That's what well, finance ministers course. do the world over.
0: Yeah, but, but but they should become a little bit more farsighted about this because, you know, the, the, the 9% VAT rate that I spoke about with some passion a few weeks back, um, and I, I thought that was certainly a case of economists within the Department of Finance knowing the value at the price of everything and the value of nothing. I mean, the, 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 the money that the the reduced VAT rate ended up coming back into the economy. Okay, so it wasn't lost to the system. And likewise, the sort of tax changes uh, you're speaking about, or at least William Hague is speaking about for younger people, uh, that is not a loss of money to the system. You know, that money will find its way back into the system through the multiplier effect and so on. So I, I, I think, you know, you've got to look at the problems Um, that young people particularly are experiencing at the moment, which are quite significant. Um, You know, you might turn around and argue or some will. Well, they've never had it so good in terms of employment. And that is true. But they've never had it so bad in other ways. And, um, you know, there, there was a couple of years ago when I would have sort of suggested, well, when I was that age, it wasn't great either. You know, it was still difficult to get on the housing ladder and so on. But it is a hell of a lot worse today. There is no doubt about that. And what, what you have to look at is people um, on average salaries, you know, nurses, guards, etc. that sort of, uh, I suppose, typical, that cohort, exactly that's the word I was trying to think of there, that sort of cohort of people, um, they just could not get on the Dublin housing ladder
1: at the moment. Just, no, there's no right. way possible. Of course, the, the response that this would my cut in the usc abolish it for the under 35s or halve it or do something with it would just feed higher house prices and rents is is well made i think but of course it gives people the the, the the optionality the freedom to spend it whenever they want to so they could um save it for when house prices come down when the ecb makes their big policy mistake or uh the consequences of the policy mistake they've made already are felt because If your house prices do anything like the ones that um, are happening in the UK right now, Jim, you you can look forward to lower house prices just simply as a result of higher interest rates, if the UK is a good model for you. Um, Of course, one of the things that a young person or any kind of person who's faced with a tax cut could do is go down the pub. But what they don't want to do is go to a pub in the UK that's owned by a, a brand called Stonegate because they apparently in, either have introduced or are going to introduce this thing called dynamic beer pricing. If ever you've used Uber the cab firm the the ride sharing firm which I do know exists in Dublin it's very very prevalent here in the UK widespread is that uh, they use dynamic pricing as well so that when it's raining or rush hour or both the price of your Uber goes through the roof literally. Um, but the one thing about the Uber pricing, of course, is that when you call an Uber cab up on your phone, you see how much it's going to cost you in advance. Transparency is 100 percent. I just wonder what's going to happen in the, these pubs when you go in thinking your pint's going to be six quid. And because it, there's a match on, it turns out to be eight quid. Is it too late to say I don't want it anymore? So I do think pricing transparency is is an issue here. And so they're going to have to have some kind of electronic instantly or continuously changing pricing board for for the price of a pint, which, which I think I, is
0: hold on a second, isn't that exactly what happens in Temple Bar at the moment? Is it? Yeah, and isn't it what happens in the hotel market here at the moment?
1: Well, I know prices change at certain times yeah. of the, the day, but not the day, it? it's not conti- tel- it's not continuously, is it?
0: Oh, I could do absolutely. You you would see hotel room rates changing significantly over the weeks, depending on what's happening.
1: But you always know in advance what you're going to pay.
0: Well, you know, when you go online, absolutely. Well, I guess, yeah, you don't walk into a pub. Uh, but even before you hand over your money, you know what the pint is going to cost you. So if you think it's too much, just walk you do. out. I
1: mean, what, what, how, how do you actually know? If they haven't, if, if they, they might have gone up, the, you know, as you're walking through the pub up to the, since you bought your last pint, they might have gone up two quid. Excuse me, Barman, how much is my pint before I buy it? Well, I well I in my local I know how much a pint is if I if I go into a strange pub on the first pint you know how much it's going to cost all right so if you're in a strange pub you buy a pint cost you a fiver you go up for your second and I know I'm probably revealing myself to be a problem drinker here going up for my second pint Jim but if that's now gone up to £6.50 I mean I don't think that's very transparent is it but I think it's going to put a lot of people off pubs to be honest Chris
0: um we're meeting for a pint in Dublin in the next couple of days so we perhaps, perhaps we'll try the theory, will we?
1: We'll ask the we'll ask the barman. What, what okay. does he think about dynamic beer pricing?
0: Absolutely, uh, Chris. Chris, my my final comment here would be um, moving away from the dynamic beer pricing uh, on the budget again. The budget is on October tenth. We will obviously be talking about it in advance over the next month or so. Uh, but in relation to taxation, um, I can assure you the. Under 30 or under 35 tax reduction ain't going to happen. The three things that are being mooted at the moment on the tax front would be a significant reduction in the dreaded USC, um, the introduction of a middle rate of tax, say 30%, um, and a lifting of the income threshold at which one enters the higher rate of taxation from 40,000. Those are the three ideas. That seem to be doing the rounds on the tax front at the moment, and of course, all of the usual suspects are coming out saying we should not
1: be cutting taxes. The only thing to do with money is increase spending. Yes, I know, and but I, I bet you that two out of those three things will happen. That would be my gamble at, at the moment. Um, but uh, there's there's an off there's so much nonsense spoken about all of this, Jim, and so much so much. So very little people able to take a holistic view. And that's yeah. the service that we provide on this podcast. Unbiased, politically neutral, um, decent, holistic analysis. And no Don't one, laugh. Don't no laugh.
0: At all. Chris, li- listeners appear to be taking grave exception to me, accusing you having having an agenda. About well, that's the what you do most of the time, is it?
1: <laughs> You're using the data. That's right. I'm just I am entirely data driven. There, there, there are no ideological biases on this side of the uh, of the podcast whatsoever. I can't speak for your side, Jim. But... You you actually
0: even said something positive about a Tory today. There I is not. Yeah.
1: Well, he's an old fashioned Tory. <laughs> Chris, talk to you. Talk to you soon, Jim. Take it easy, mate.
0: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com, or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part?